Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church. Thank you so much for being here. Like Jason said, please uh, remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. If you'd like to follow along in the reading and you need a Bible, they can be found in the seat backs in front of you. If you uh, don't have a Bible at home, please take this one home with you. Or if you know someone that needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hands throughout the week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Esther, chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, and can be found uh, on page 413, actually. 413. Follow along with me as I read. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this church. God, we especially thank you and praise you this morning for Brooks' baptism. God, we uh, also thank you for a successful youth trip that led to um, another youth being brought to Jesus this morning. God, we, uh, we thank you for all these things. We pray that you would bless uh, Jason this morning as he brings us this message. But we pray for all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you guys, go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, last week, I referenced, I used an example, illustration, whatever those things are called, about the old Westerns, how the good guys wore the white hats and the bad guys wore the black hats. And so when we were eating lunch with my family, one of my kids said, Dad, I just wanted to talk to you about something that you said in the sermon. And so I'm like, oh, sweet. wonder what doctrinal point I made that you know, has made a lasting impact on them all the way to lunch. And they said, you know, you said all the good guys wore white hats, but Tombstone's your favorite movie, and all the good guys wore black hats in that movie, Dad. <laughs> I received that. To which I replied, then you don't get the story of Tombstone, because there's no good guys in the story. I don't know if you've put that together or realized. I know the main character is uh, Kurt Russell. No, Wyatt Earp. That's his name. Like, it's historical. It's rooted in history. The main character is Wyatt Earp. And I get Doc Holliday's a character, and, and it's the Earp brothers versus the, the Cowboys. But I don't know if you've noticed, like, there's, if you're looking for the person that you want your little boy to be like or your daughter to be like in that story, it's not in there. But it's this epic story about these brothers and these cowboys. But what it really is is a story about escalation and what happens if there's not someone willing to de-escalate the situation. There have been times when I'll be driving and the situation will escalate and my wife will put her hand on my shoulder and we will de-escalate the situation. You need de-escalators around you, okay? But that story is one about uh, the the Ert brothers came to make money and ended up into law because of, of the cowboys. And then they just keep escalating until people start getting shot at and someone winds up dead in the Earp side and someone winds up dead on the cowboy side. And then by the end, there's a lot of blood that's been shed if somebody would have just said, sorry about it, you know? And so uh, I love the story. I love the movie, but it's true. There's not a good, really good moral example in the story. And that's kind of how we find ourselves in Esther. Like if you're looking for the person who wears the white hat or gets it right all the time on the nose in these characters, uh, Esther and Mordecai really don't show up that way as we read the story, uh, even though she's the main character and then the supporting cast would be uh, her uncle Mordecai. The, the guy who wears the white hat in this story really is Jesus. 
And even though the story doesn't mention him like on the nose specifically, the whole Bible is one meta-narrative from Genesis to Revelation, the beginning to the end. It's one big story about how God is working through his son to build a people for himself, rescuing us from sin, Satan, and death, and hell, and, and, and freeing us, and then evil will be banished forever, and his people will live with him forever. It's one big story. It's called the meta-narrative. And then there's many narratives all throughout. The, each book will whisper the name of Jesus. And so what we're going to look at today, like typically for a preacher, you want to, to preach a uh, passage that, that has like one big idea, and then all your little subpoints support that one big idea. That's great preaching. Unfortunately, today... I don't know, <laughs> just telling on myself. We're going to read through a section of Scripture because that's my favorite way to teach is to go book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So it might feel like we're a little bit all over the place uh, as we just pull out some principles and notice some stuff we're reading. And that's because we're in a section of Scripture that's called narrative writing. It's a story. And the reason for the story is so we would have a historical account to know how some of God's people ended up in Persia during the Old Testament and how the people were almost to be destroyed, but then God put Esther and her uncle Mordecai in that place for that time for us to know that God used them. And so the reason I brought up Tombstone is... There's, this is a story of escalation, and what we see in the story of Esther is a situation of escalation between Esther's uncle Mordecai and another man named Haman. And so we're going to deal with their cultural war that they've created in Persia, uh, uh, in the city of Susa, and we're going to find some principles and some stuff that we're just, you know, talk about life for a minute, and then we're going to turn it to a sermon at the end and see how this all whispers back to us Jesus' name. But this story between Haman and Mordecai, both of these guys have impressed King Ahasuerus. That's his Persian name. His Greek name is Xerxes. So if you've ever seen movies with this huge guy named Xerxes being carried on his throne, that's the king that we're talking about. He's the husband to uh, Esther. And so Mordecai discovered a plot of assassination against King Ahasuerus. And he told Ahasuerus about it. And so Mordecai is going to remember him and want to honor him. In the same time this is happening, there's a guy named Haman who is advancing in ranks in the king's um, in, in, in government. And so Haman has just been promoted. And in our culture, whenever someone with honor uh, walks into our presence, we typically stand up if we are sitting down. We reach out our hands and we shake hands or we'll take our hat off or we'll open the door for them. In this culture that we've been reading about since we've been in Esther, uh, you get low. When someone has been promoted, you get lower than them and they stand taller than you. And so what we have seen, just to catch you guys up to speed, if this is your first day with us, is Haman and Mordecai have beef. They're both racist. They're, they have racism against each other and each other's people. It goes back hundreds of years. And so whenever Haman walks in, everyone else bows down to Haman to show their respect except Mordecai. He's standing there with his arms crossed and saying, I ain't going to do it ain't going to do it. Now, I'd love to tell you it was deep spiritual reasons and that Mordecai was standing in civil protest uh, because it was an ungodly thing for him to do. But really, he was just angry that this guy uh, was getting promoted and, and angry with everything this guy stood for from what we see in the scripture. And so Haman has created a plot and he ran it past government and ran it past the king that all of the Jewish people in the land of Persia uh, under Persian... Um, rule, which would include at this point in history Israel, should be eliminated and exterminated, annihilated, removed. And so 
That's what the king had commanded. That catches us up to speed. The, all of the Jews were about to be destroyed because Haman despised Mordecai and wanted to eliminate Mordecai and all his people. And so this is keeping Mordecai up at night. He's restless over this. He tells his niece, Esther, to go to the king and ask the king to spare the, the people, and she will do that eventually. And so that kind of catches us up to speed to see there's this story of escalation. And you know when stuff escalates, it's like a bubble. It's about to pop. So let's see what happens in the story. In verse 1, there was a night that the king couldn't sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, uh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, laying hands on somebody was that getting a hold of them, like throwing hands is probably the best way uh, to say it. They meant ill toward King Ahasuerus. Now, in this day and time, you didn't roll over and pick up your phone and start scrolling through your socials. You would call upon someone, I don't know if he clapped or what he did, but they would come in and just start reading to him some of the good things that have happened. And while I don't think Ahasuerus is a worshiper of the Lord. I don't think we would consider him one of God's people in this story. I would say that, that God is at work in him to get to Mordecai to save his people. And our God's the kind of God who would have the king wake up at night with insomnia and ask to have something read to him. And when it's read to him, it recalls to him one of God's people. And now he wants to do something kind for God's people. Our, kind, our God's the kind of God who'll wake Joe Biden up in the middle of the night and not let him sleep so that he could pass a bill or something that would be for the good of God's people. And that one may feel a little bit detached from your life, uh, but God's the kind of God that'll wake your supervisor up or you if you supervise others or a dad uh, cons uh, considering your children and just let you not sleep so that you can get up and uh, reflect and, and get some clarity. And that's exactly what is happening in Ahasuerus' life right here. And so it just reminds me of when Jesus would get away, he'd go take naps, he would pray and fast, and he would reflect before he would make big decisions. And I think it's good for us to, to take that principle and seek solitude uh, in our lives. I don't think that insulation and isolation is good for any of us, but silence and solitude built in our rhythms of life is absolutely good for us. For some of you, that might look like uh, there's a drive to work a week where you don't listen to a podcast, uh, you don't listen to music, you just sit there quietly. If you're a mom and, and somebody has the kids, maybe that's every drive that you, that you have, you know? Uh, but, um, but do you have built-in times in your life where you can have silence and solitude so that you can reflect and so that you can get clarity? I would even tell you on nights that you can't sleep, consider that God might be trying to tell you something and just roll over, get out of bed and say, oh, what is it, Lord? Read, read a chapter of the Bible, um, reflect, and get some clarity. So that's what he's doing. And, and I want to say this to those of you who are here and you may be feeling like, man, I've been praying, I've been pleading with the Lord for something to move. It feels like it's not budging. It feels like um, I'm forgotten. I want you to know that God sees and knows. God sees and knows. And he's doing a million and three things around you for you, for your good, and you may not be aware of any of them. He might be waking somebody up in the middle of the night with insomnia, and something is about to happen in your life that, that God's going to move, and it's for his glory and for your good. So the king says, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing. <laughs> we haven't done anything. I don't know if you've ever been there and realized we didn't celebrate. Or we didn't do that thing. And the king said, uh, who was in the court? Now, this is interesting. This is providential. This is irony. 
where God has walking into the court at this time, Haman. Haman's the one who wants Mordecai to be killed. Uh, Haman just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, we'll let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, Haman does not know what we know. I think, I think this is irony. I think I'm using irony right here, okay? Because there was a song like back in the day, isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Who remembers that? The irony of that song is that none of those things were irony in the whole song. That was all coincidence, okay? Right? The English teacher's like, absolutely. Okay. But the irony here is that, first of all, God has a sense of humor, and God will poke fun of and mock evil. And Haman has an evil plot, and he's built gallows so that Mordecai would hang from them. And he's coming in uh, to tell the king that's what he wants to do. As he's walking in, the king is going to ask him, what should we do to honor somebody who deserves to be honored? Haman thinks he's talking about himself. So Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? What a great thing to say about yourself. Haman's a good guy, and if you didn't know it, he'd tell you. Okay? Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor... Hmm. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horses you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I love that that's in there. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. This is fun for me, okay? So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city. Can you believe this? This is so good. And proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Nobody's had a worse day at work than Haman ever, okay? <laughs> but what we do see here, something good we can pull out of this narrative. Now, I, want, I want to tell you, and I'll, I'll try to tell you whenever stuff comes up, and I hope to teach about the Bible as I teach the Bible to you, but there are descriptive passages of scriptures and there are prescriptive passages. A descriptive passage just describes to us what has happened, and that's what this is. So I want to be careful and say, I'm just, we're reading a story and we're finding some good stuff out that we should probably include in our rhythms of life. But this is not a, de, uh, a prescriptive passage that is prescribing that we do these things. But there's still principles and things we can pull out anyways. One of those would be uh, remembering those and honoring those who should be honored. Maybe you've heard the phrase, um, correct in private, but honor or praise publicly. And there is a right time and an appropriate time to honor and praise people publicly. We live in a culture where when we go public, it's usually to tear down, to rip down. Someone's getting uh, too much esteem and we want to remove it uh, in our culture. Now, not you guys. You probably wouldn't do that with Facebook or anything like that, but other, other people would, right? But where we, we use that platform to say negative things about people, not so much to say positive things about others. Man, I got um, just bothered about in my own life how... A couple of years ago, we went through COVID. I lost a good buddy of mine to that, and I just thought, man, um, 
I spent a lot of time telling him, push through, push through, you're going to be fine. I wish I'd have spent more time just telling him how much he meant to me. And I decided, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to make sure that I eulogize the living. And so every once in a while, I'll take about a week, a month, and I'll just start to say kind things about my friends or pastors I've had in the past or that sort of thing, or post a picture of somebody from a picture of us when we were younger, that sort of thing. And almost every time I do that, someone will reach out to me. And uh, the first uh, text I'll get is just a picture of a glass of bourbon with a question mark beside it. And they're like, hey, you've been in your feels or what? I'm like, i just saying nice things about people. The second text I'll get is usually like, hey, is some, did something happen to our buddy? I saw that you were po- posted a picture of him the other day and, and was kind of telling a story. And I was like, no, I just, it was true. And I just wanted to say it. I, I just find it funny that it's, it's weird to say nice, kind things about each other. Uh, I took a bunch of big redneck dudes uh, uh, they were my deacons at uh, a church I pastored in rural Oklahoma. And one night, I just made it weird. I was that guy, and I said, listen, uh, I, I did a funeral a week back then. I've, I've been to two funerals and uh, preached one of them and attended one in all of the eight or nine years that I've lived here. It's just death is not a, a prominent thing in our culture. I know people are dying, but we don't see it. We're not going to funerals all the time. But back where I come from, it was a big part of just how we grew up. You went to a funeral at least once a month. And I got there for a stretch. I was preaching one about once a week. And so I just gathered our fellas up and I said, all right, somebody's going to sit in the middle. We're going to make a circle and we're just going to honor one another. And we're going to say things that we appreciate about each other. And at first, all we did was insult each other, you know, you know, they were like, they thought they would get one over on me, you know? And so I said, okay, get all the insults out of the way. Let's rib each other. Now, okay, now for real, let's go. And man, everybody was like weeping and thankful. And, and it was awesome. like, I don't know if I'll ever run that play ever again, because we just almost didn't survive it, you know? But I just thought, why do we wait till people die before we honor and praise them? So I just want to say to you, it's a good thing that Ahasuerus put the robes on Mordecai and who do you need to honor? As a mom or dad, which kid today at lunch needs to be told, hey, you, good job. We see growth in you. We see um, that the ball is moving forward. If you run a company or own a company, who's getting stuff done? Who needs a promotion? Who needs to be told good job? Um, uh, I just want to t- publicly honor those who volunteer and serve here in our church and those who lead on staff here at our church. Um, in a lot of volu- in most volunteer organizations, you've heard of the 80-20 rule where 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. And we actually track that stuff here at Grace Point Church. And there was a time whenever like 90% of the people who attended on a Sunday morning were involved in serving somewhere in the church at least once a month. So that ratio is not really true for us, not 20% of the people. It's re- more like 80% of the people here today are engaged in serving. And I'm a grateful pastor. I appreciate that. Um, thank you. You're working hard. People are meeting Jesus. People are getting baptized. Um, it's good stuff. You may not know this about the staff at our church, but all of them on staff are volunteer. And that's not because of like philosophy of ministry. It's because unlike Congress, we can't just print more money and pay everybody, right? And so we are being as faithful to steward dollars as we can. And so your staff members here at Grace Point serve like a Boy Scout leader or a Girl Scout leader or a soccer coach, but they do that all the time, like all year long. So they're volunteering like 10 hours a week, sometimes more, sometimes up to 20. There's uh, some people that volunteered their whole week and took kids to camp this week. 
and it's great. Somebody got saved. We got more baptisms to come. It's good. And so I just, as a pastor, want to say thank you. You're doing a great job. We, we honor you. We are grateful for you. And so we've gathered to do this today. This is a rhythm for Christians. We gather up on Sundays, and I know that... Um, there's insights from the sermon we can learn that's helpful. I know we're networking a little bit as we're together today. We're enjoying the fellowship of friendship. But ultimately, the reason we've gathered here is to tell Jesus how big a deal he is to us in our life. Like we're literally going to stand up and sing to Jesus. Like think about how often you actually sing to someone. It's probably just on somebody's birthday unless you're putting the moves on your bride, you know, or whatever, you know, with a guitar and singing, uh, you never close your eyes, or whatever. You know, going all Top Gun. But um, yeah, but how often do you sing to someone? We do that every single week. And we're not singing to each other. We're singing to Jesus because that's the guy who saved us from our sin. Guys, we were going to hell. We're, we're not that good. I mean, some of us are better, but we're not great. We're not Jesus. There was a guy who went to Jesus and said, oh, good teacher. He said, there's none good but God. You know, like that's, that's where we're at. He's the guy in the white cowboy hat. We're all wearing the black cowboy hats because we're all like the people in Tombstone, you know. That being said, Jesus, fully God, fully man, enters into human history. He is born to uh, Mary and his stepdad, Joseph. I just want you to envision Jesus as when he, he has to learn how to walk. He has to learn how to talk. He probably says paschetti instead of spaghetti. He probably tried to make his first glass of chocolate milk and broke the jar. You know, like it's not that Jesus never made mistakes and that might freak you out a little bit. What do you mean? What are you, you going to say? What I mean is Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. He never broke a commandment, but he probably walked into something and it fell and broke. He experienced humanity. Okay. He was completely human. And so he's completely God. He's completely human, but he's without any sin. And that's where our righteousness comes from. Reason I throw that up there is think about the times that you Punish your kids for mistakes rather than rebellion. Just th- no, Jesus never got a spanking because he never rebelled, okay? Unless Joseph got it wrong and then Jesus was like, boy, you're going to pay for this, you know? <laughs> Anyways, that's interesting. Anyways, I'll move on. But uh, that's where our righteousness comes from, is because Jesus never disobeyed a commandment of God and he gives us credit for all that he did right. He gives that to us, he earned it, he achieved it. We receive it by faith when we believe that Jesus lived a life of faithfulness to the Father. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just an innocent man uh, in an unjust death or unjust death. God poured his wrath out on Jesus because of our sin. Like in this room, they're like, we have days that haunt us. We have fear and guilt and shame attached to things that we have done or said to others and attached to things others have said and done to us. And Jesus at the cross absorbed the wrath of God against those sins so that we could be forgiven. So our good name comes from Christ's hard work. Our forgiveness comes because Jesus became our sins so that we could become his righteousness. And then he raised from the dead. And when he raised from the dead for 2,000 years, we've been getting together on Sundays going, hey, do you know Jesus raised from the dead? Well, quit doing that. Did you know we're forgiven of our sin? Do you know that Jesus is God? Do you know that he's alive? Do you know that we're not just a philosophical group of people trying to be nice to people that we hate? Like if I'm out on that, that's not Christianity. We're not here to pretend that we're better versions of ourselves. We walk in here with a limp if we need the limp. We leap in here if things are going our way. And we remember that we're not what we've done. We're who Jesus says we are. We're forgiven. We're accepted because of him. 
And so we worship Jesus. We honor him and we worship him. And while we don't worship other people, we should honor other people. This should be rhythms of our life. Verse 12, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house. This is after the parade. The parade's over. You ever been to the parade? And Haman's been walking Mordecai around on this horse all day and telling everybody, this is the greatest guy in all of Persia and been doing all that, you know, come and see the greatest guy. And so Mordecai, of course, goes back to a public square and, you know, look at me. And Haman goes to the house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. (laughs) Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And she is telling the truth. This reminds me of um, the second time I saw Top Gun Maverick this week. Um, Yeah. So uh, Carrie and I uh, went with some friends earlier this week to see Top Gun Maverick. I told you the second time, didn't I? So we're sitting there, and there's this scene where one of the fighter pilots named... I don't think there's any spoilers here. There are... I'm really sorry. I don't mean to do that. But Hangman, that's his name is getting on to Rooster, who's Goose's son. And if you know nothing about Top Gun, you're like, this is the weirdest movie in the world. But I'm just going to leave it there. You'll have, to, you'll have to do your research. So Hangman is putting his finger in Rooster's face and bringing up the past and telling them, if you're in charge and we follow after you, we're all going to die. I don't think I gave anything away. And as we're sitting there, I hear my buddy's wife go, I want to punch that guy in the face. I was like, yeah. And then my buddy goes, that don't make him wrong. And that's kind of what Haman is listening to with his wife, Zerah. She's right. Now, the trouble is she's only like batting five. Well, if, we, if you could bat uh, 500, that's actually pretty good. But she's only you know, 50-50 on wisdom because she's the one who told him to build the gallows for Mordecai to hang from. You know, She also inspired him to build the death trap that he's actually going to be executed on. So we got to also give her that. But I say that to say that who do you have in your life that you might want to punch them in the face because of what they have said to you, but they're telling you the truth because they love you. They are not weaponizing truth. They're not saying it to harm you. They're saying it to help you. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. Who do you have in your life that loves Jesus and loves you and can tell you, stop it or start it or whatever you need to receive And to where you can, uh, like I've told you guys this, I don't know what your repentance turnaround looks like. Mine's about 12 hours. Somebody will tell me something. It will make me mad. I'll go tell Carrie. She'll agree with them. So I'm even more mad. I'll go to bed praying for them and their wayward ways. And I'll wake up in the morning and pour my first cup of coffee and be like, Lord, you're right. They're right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Now, that's what it looks like for me. I wish it was faster than that. But it ain't so far. You know, I'm 40 now, and that's, I'm still keeping that record, okay? So that's where I'm at. But you need wise people that can speak into your life. Uh, Proverbs is one of my favorite books, and Proverbs is written like a, a dad with his son looking out over a city and just give, giving and pouring out wisdom and pointing out to different scenarios and to different people to be like or watch out for. And you can categorize um, people in three categories. There is, or, or counsel, uh, three categories of counsel. There's wise counsel, there's foolish counsel, 
and there's evil counsel. And so um, wise people are those who invest their money. They invest their time. They invest in relationships. The wise leader builds up his team and lifts them up. The wise parent understands that their primary role in their relationship with their kids is to be a teacher that is building them to launch them out into life one day. Okay? The foolish person is someone who will waste their time or they will waste their money. They'll overextend themselves in debt when it comes to finances. Um, they will uh, waste relationships. A foolish person is someone who's going down and they're pulling you down with them. It's not that they meant to harm you or wound you. You're just kind of in the collateral damage zone because of the decisions that they have made. You, you got into their life to try to help them and they ended up kind of pulling you into the ditch along with them. A foolish parent would be one who uh, misunderstands their role and they try to be friends with their kids right away. And then years later, you're, you're recognizing some dysfunction and some toxicity, and you're wondering where it's come from. And it's come from you trying to be their buddy rather than being their dad or their mom and being their teacher. Um, and then evil people. Evil people or evil counsel is someone who want, is leading you to do something because they want to harm you or hurt you. They want to wound you. They want your destruction. This is Haman against Mordecai and all of God's people. He's an evil man wanting... He's giving evil, given evil counsel to Ahasuerus so that an evil plot could be carried through. And so evil people want to wound or harm others. Evil people will, they don't just spend money or invest money, they will steal money. They will, you know, be crooked. Um, and in relationships, they are as parents. These are those who would abuse their children or neglect their children. And so as you consider counsel, when you go to someone and say, what do you think? You know, he brought together his wise people and his wise wife, and she told him the truth. He needs to prepare. He's probably going to fall before Mordecai, if Mordecai is one of the Jewish people. If you don't have wisdom in your life, I would encourage you to get into one of our community groups. In our community groups, we open our Bibles, we open our lives, we are friends about Jesus, we love Jesus, we love each other, and that is a place where that kind of relationship can happen. In some of our groups, these are each other's godparents. They go on vacation together. They hang out. They post pictures. They're, you know, it's, it's like that. And some of our groups, people are like, I wouldn't hang out with these, these people. I only do this because of Jesus. <laughs> you know, We don't vote the same. We don't have kids the same age. We don't look the same. We're not from the same tax bracket. But Jesus has brought us together. We, probably, we may not vacation together, and I, and I wouldn't want my kid to vote like they vote. But we love Jesus, and we are, we are brought together because of Jesus. And I want you to know that that's a good place to receive wisdom, because this week people will take this sermon and this scripture, and they'll read it, and someone is going to say, I feel like God got in my business this week, and I need to change, but I don't know how to change. And a group leader will say, guys, what do you, what do you guys think? And someone will say, here's what that looked like for me. And they will walk through that with that brother or sister. And next thing you know, there's repentance happening. Confession is when we agree with God about what should change. Repentance is when we actually start to change. And I've noticed that repentance happens best when we open our lives and open our Bibles around God's people. And the, we read the Bible and the Bible can read us. And then we can begin to change. And so he's receiving wise counsel. Now let me try to turn this into a sermon with 12 seconds left on the clock. We're in the red zone. Let's see if we can make the drive, all right? When I first moved here, just to go to Walmart, I had to put in my phone, like, Walmart, you know, and then I talk funny, so it was like, 
I don't understand. You know, anyways, I had to do the whole thing. You heard my watch a minute ago. So, but this whole valley just seemed, you know, huge to me. And then I learned it's all north and south and east and west. It's just a grid. As long as I know street numbers and, you know, the numbers go north and south and the names go east and west, I kind of know where I'm at, unless I'm in Sun City. How do y'all make it home who live in Sun City? You drive in circles, like literally drive in circles. It's really something. Uh, but anyways, uh, Jesus loves you guys, and I, I feel bad for your travels home. I know you get golf carts, that's nice, but they drive in circles whenever you drive them. Anyways, but um, the Bible is like that. When you start out in the Scriptures, you're going to feel like you are in this huge, vast ocean of writing. And then the more you read it, you'll see that, oh, it is one big meta narrative. It is one big story about how Jesus is saving God's people from their sins. That Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus, but Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. And one day he'll come back and write all that's gone wrong. And then as you read Genesis, you see it in light of that big story. As we read Esther, we see it in light of that big story. As we read Acts in the New Testament, we see us in light of that story and what our work is to do to lead other people to become followers of Jesus and baptizing people to identify with the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And you're like, oh, I find myself in the story. So Jesus enters into human history, but he also enters into your story. And the way we see Jesus enter here is we see these robes and this crown, and we see that Haman is thinking that he is telling the king how he wants to be honored. But what happens is there's this exchange, there's this trading of places where Haman takes the robes and the crown that were prepared for him, and he gives it to Mordecai and places it on Mordecai's head. And he travels around on this horse, and he's praised for being the, the right one and the leader. And then the gallows that Haman made for Mordecai, Haman will absorb his own wrath and be put to death on the gallows. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Next week, we're going to see and read where Haman ends up being tortured by the device he wanted to torture Mordecai with. Now, I'm a pastor and I have commentaries, and so I can see how this whispers to Jesus. If you don't see it yet, don't feel bad. That's why you came to church. That's why you have a pastor, and that's why you came here. This whispers back to 2 Corinthians 5.21 where Paul writes, God took him who knew no sin and caused him to be sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus not only entered human history, he enters your story. And let's be honest, you've got like a day or two or three or a season of life where you are haunted, haunted by something you've said or something that you've done. You have wounded people. You were reckless, you were selfish, maybe you were rebellious, whatever it was, or you lied and you pretended to be good, but secretly your heart was dark and dead. And Jesus came in and saved you from yourself and saved you from your sin. What did not happen, he did not hand you a chore chart of good deeds and say, stop cussing, go to church, um, be nice to people you hate, and I'll like you and I'll let you in. That's not what happened. What happened is on the cross, he became your literal adultery. On the cross, he literally became the theft that you stole. He became the lies that you told, the deception, the dishonesty, the corruption, the lack of character. On the cross also, some of you have days that haunt you. It's not the thing that you've done to someone. You're not most haunted by guilt. You may be most haunted by shame. 
and there was abuse or there was neglect, when you compare yourself to other people, you think that you have like junior varsity dignity and they have varsity levels of dignity and you kind of live from this shame of I am the things that happened to me. Some of you live from this guilt of I am the things that I have done or said to others. Jesus literally traded places with you. If you look to the cross and put faith in Jesus, he exchanges the bad and gives you the good. So Christians are not people who figured their stuff out, got better than everybody else so that God would like them and let them in. Christians are people that are forgiven. We are not most marked by perfection. That's Jesus. We are most marked by repentance. That when we discover there's sin in our life, we name it and we walk away from it and we walk closer with Jesus. And so we've gathered here today to remember that Jesus traded places with us. He went to the gallows for us and we deserved it. And he put on us a crown of life and robes of righteousness. And he, with his voice, has declared us innocent, not by merit, but by grace. We've been made innocent. Some of you don't know what that's like. I invite you to believe that and receive that today. It looks like believing in your heart that Jesus has raised from the dead, that this is not an insane thing to do, that the man Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he is the Lord of Lords. I believe that's the one that's true. And I believe this is not philosophical, it's historical. We're truly changed and given a capacity to confess our sins when we once would conceal our sins. We have a capacity to forgive sins when we used to just dole out good old-fashioned throat punches, right? We can absorb because Christ has absorbed our wrath. Believe in your heart that Jesus raised from the dead. Confess with your lips that he is your Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray.